0: This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another edition of National Security Magazine from Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf. I am your host. I am in New York City, and I am pleased to be joined today by Professor Stephen Walt of Harvard's Kennedy School, uh, I think you're in Cambridge, Massachusetts now. Would I be right in the general vicinity?
1: That's, that's correct. Right in the heart of Cambridge. Um,
0: well, thank you, thanks for joining us. i I'd, I'd like to cover a lot of ground. You cover a lot of ground in a lot of things, but I, I want to start out in a place that we we sort of tangentially touched upon the last time you were in deep state radio. Um, and that is, you know, issues pertaining to Israel and the U.S. and the debate in the U.S. about Israel and the debate in Israel about the U.S. and so forth. And, you know, a long time ago, you know, you wrote a very important book on the Israel lobby. And I wrote a very nasty review of the book. Um, And I was, you know, as I said on the, the episode of the show, I've thought better of a lot of the things that I said there. And I apologize for a lot of the things that I said there. I, You know, I mean, I still have some differences about how important the Israel lobby is or isn't and 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 why it's framed the way it is. But I was sort of goaded into being a jerk. And, and I was a jerk. And I, I don't feel good about that in retrospect. Um, but having said that, as I've watched the debate over the course of the past several years, um, I've become increasingly disheartened um, by the speed with which uh, defenders of Israel employ uh, the tactic of, of of calling critics of the Israeli government anti-Semitic, and that was part of the the mix of 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 of, of my attack on your book. And I, as I said, I regret that. Um, and and in fact, I I, I think the reality is. Um, this 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 is a kind of blunt instrument that gets used too much and of course recently we've seen this uh in the case of representative Omar and her comments about you know all about the benjamins and and there came this kind of wave of attacks against her and i i don't think she should have said it i think it was insensitive at best i think it was uh it, it she's been associated with some people who are legitimately anti-Semitic, and I think it's fair criticism. But I actually think that she represents something good, which is a diversification of the debate in the United States, bringing Muslim voices into the Congress, bringing Muslim women's voices into the Congress, having a more well-rounded debate, both because I think that's healthy for democracy, and also because I think The government of Israel has made a number of horrific moves in the course of the past, well, in the course of the past couple of decades. But in the course of the past several years, of sort of throwing out any sort of semblance of 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 decency in its treatment of the Palestinians, or of sort of the sort of political neutrality in the United States that has been the tradition and. BB is thrown all in with Trump and was all against Obama and and you know it's, it's, it's gotten ugly on, on every possible level. Anyway, that, that's sort of the preamble. Um, and uh, I was just wondering what your reaction was to where this debate is right now?
1: Well, uh, a couple of things. I mean, I think that in some sense you are seeing a wider debate than you saw 10 or 15 years ago. And back when we wrote our original uh, London Review of Books article and then the subsequent book, that was, I think, our overarching purpose. We thought... The issue of uh, the U.S.-Israeli relationship, U.S.-Middle East policy more broadly, these were things that needed to be talked about in a sort of open, calm, rational fashion, Um, and that one of the sort of elephants in the room back then was the role that AIPAC and various associated organizations were playing. Um, It wasn't that this was a secret. Uh, Anybody who had worked on Capitol Hill knew about this and uh, took this seriously, and it wasn't that there was anything— all that unusual about an interest group uh, trying to shape U.S. policy. There's lots of interest groups in America, but this was one that people didn't want to talk about for precisely the reason uh, you just put your finger on that that if you did, uh, you were likely to get uh, smeared in a variety of different ways, and you know life would get interesting, but not necessarily in a in a pleasant. Uh, pleasant way. Um, You know, what I think we're seeing now, yes, has been the overuse of the sort of anti-Semitic charge, but but one has to, I think, approach the entire topic by recognizing that there is a history here. Um, and it, there's, it's entirely understandable that uh, Jews in the United States and all over the world are very sensitive when they start hearing about, you know, quote-unquote Jewish influence. And certainly if then it starts to invoke some of the old anti-Semitic tropes, uh, mostly in Europe, but not uh, confined to Europe, about <clears throat> finance and media and things like that. Um, If any of those things happen, and particularly if they're done in a careless or inaccurate way, it's entirely understandable that people react. And by the way, I think non-Jews should react to those things as well. Which is why when I uh, wrote about this last week, I said, you know, it was clear that Representative Omar, uh, you know, wanted to talk about this issue, but was doing it in ways that were both not factually accurate and was clearly insensitive. to her credit, she subsequently apologized for it as well. so I think would has to be sensitive to that history, but at the same time, we need to be able to talk about the issue, to talk about the role that different groups in the United States play in, in our policy. And the point we made in our book uh, was that, in fact, uh, a sort of one-sided debate or a very narrow debate and It certainly wasn't good for the United States, but probably wasn't good for Israel either because it was allowing various political forces in Israel to sort of go unchecked, confident that they would get American support uh, regardless of sort of what was happening. And I think the evolution of uh, Israeli policy over the last 20 years or so, uh, which I think has caused a great deal of soul-searching, now within the American Jewish community, has been partly, uh, uh, I guess, um, permitted by the fact that uh, the United States still has had a pretty one-sided policy and hasn't had a particularly open debate. Uh, I keep hoping that that will eventually adjust and that the United States will have a more normal relationship uh, with Israel. Uh, that hasn't, certainly hasn't happened yet, even though the conversation is in some respects more open than it used to be.
0: Uh, Well, you know, I I guess the question becomes, where do we go from here? Israel is in the midst of a political campaign. It's seen the emergence, actually, of the first sort of legitimate challenge um, uh, to uh, Netanyahu and the Likud in a while with a new coalition formula forming. Uh, Don't know where that's going to lead. We see Netanyahu Uh, who has really been the center of a lot of these policies, and frankly, I I think is sort of one of the most odious figures on the international stage right now, not just because of his treatment of the Palestinians, perversely because of his embrace of anti-Semites from Viktor Orban to to Donald Trump to sort of support his position, and now uh, going and embracing the Kahanists, who are sort of the most odious racist component of the Israeli community as well this guy just wants to stay in power and it doesn't matter at what cost but that's that's a driving part of it at the, at the same time you've got an American government under Donald Trump or under Sheldon Adelson and and again you have talked about the Israel lobby all you want but there's one guy who's given a ton of money who got a nice $700 million tax cut for his ton of money, but and his wife got a Presidential Medal of Freedom. But, but he and D- David Friedman and Jared Kushner have been defining Israel policy, uh, and they've done it in a way that essentially says, screw the Palestinians, whatever Israel wants they get. Uh, and anybody who wants to deal with Israel on Israel's terms in the Middle East will be our friend, and those who don't, won't be. Um, and, of course, this is problematic because it leads us then to the Saudis and so forth. You've taken a broader view and one of the few people I know has tried to take a big strategic view to the Middle East. Things are changing there now. Where does it go?
1: Well, let me point to two things. So, lots of things are happening. And in some respects, with respect to Israel, I think we all are kind of waiting for whenever the post BB era begins. uh, Because, you know, for good or ill, he has cast such a large and long shadow over Israeli politics. In my view, uh, disastrously so. But, you know, there are people who obviously would would defend his handling of things. and, And your indictment on various grounds is one, you know, I would, I think, completely agree with. But there's a couple of interesting things. Uh, that have been happening uh, recently. One is I think that, you know, at some at some point, we're simply going to have to wake up and acknowledge that the two-state solution that uh, we've all favored for a long time is simply not going to happen, or at least not going to happen any time in our lifetimes, that uh, the so-called facts on the ground have just become too well entrenched and the rightward shift in Israeli politics is simply going to make that uh, impossible. Um, and that raises the interesting question. If the United States recognizes it, there isn't going to be a two-state solution, then what are we supporting? Uh, are we supporting uh, expulsion? Are we supporting uh, uh, some kind of permanent apartheid? Are we sorry, uh, supporting one state, one person, one vote in all of the land that Israel controls, uh, etc.? None of those things look as attractive to me as a two-state solution. But if I don't have a two-state solution on the table any longer, then which of these are going to support? And I've, are we going to support? And I've often fantasized about the press conference at which, uh, you know, some presidential or State Department spokesman uh, proclaims that, you know, of course, our policy is to support a two-state solution. And the assembled press corps just simply starts laughing because it sounds so absurd to talk about it at at that point. The second thing that's going on, of course, is uh, the public acknowledgement of what has been true for uh, a long time now, which is the tacit alignment between Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and the Israelis, um, something that you know used to be much more under the table than it is now, uh, I think driven more than anything else by their mutual uh, concerns about Iran, uh, but also in the case of uh, Egypt, at least, and to some degree the Saudis as well, uh, the opposition to Hamas. Uh, and well, so you have these three countries that in public don't pretend to be friends, but really are collaborating very closely. And as you said, the Trump administration has simply doubled down on American support for all three Governments, uh, regardless of their conduct, regardless of what Al Sisi is doing in Egypt, regardless of what Mohammed bin Salman has been doing uh, as crown prince uh, and uh, you know chairman of an assassination squad uh, in Saudi Arabia. And this, I think, again, driven very much by uh, some individuals who have the ear of the president and also this American perception that Iran is, in fact, the great source of danger in that part of the world. That, I guess, brings me to the third point, which is that, you know, I think all of this is uh, not in America's interest. If you step back and say, uh, you know, what does the United States really care about in the region? Our concern for 40, 50, 60, 70 years has been basically to maintain a balance of power in the region, make sure that no outside power like the old Soviet Union uh, could take it over and make sure that no regional power was able to dominate it either. Uh, We played a balance of power game in the Persian Gulf, uh, tilting towards Iran, tilting away from Iran as the balance of power shifted. We intervened to throw Iraq out of uh, Kuwait, having backed Iraq during the... Iraq war, because we just didn't want anyone to become uh, too powerful. Um, So as I look ahead, because the Middle East is as divided as it's ever been, and no country's in a position to try and dominate it right now, the United States should be trying to have more or less normal relations with as many countries as possible in the region, instead of having special relationships with some of them, and essentially no relationship at all. Uh, with at least one of them, that is to say, Iran. We ought to be acting like a sort of balance of power uh, practitioner in that part of the world. And that doesn't mean abandoning any of our current friends, but it does mean uh, distancing ourselves somewhat and starting to forge a business-like relationship with some countries that we may disagree with but aren't going away uh, anytime soon.
0: Does that include Syria?
1: Uh, Well, I think that... tacit acknowledgement, yes, is that Assad won the civil war, and he's going to be in power uh, for the foreseeable future, and that the key strategic interest there now is to try and get the uh, restoration of some degree of order, control over the remnants of ISIS, uh, some mopping up of the other jihadi groups uh, that are there, uh, and the gradual rebuilding of that country. It doesn't make any of us happy, uh, given uh, the conduct the Assad regime uh, followed during the course of the war. But uh, you know there's no other alternative here, and one wants to have a situation where there's at least some stability and order there, and perhaps some Syrians who have fled can uh, return and begin rebuilding the country.
0: Yeah, I guess, you know, I, you have been a leader of a group that uh, calls itself realists, and I think that what you're describing now is is a realistic approach, which is to essentially say... We don't set the table. We have to deal with the people in place. And if they're a mixed bag, then we have to deal with them on those terms. And that is to say, not be too close or too far. There is a, a kind of a binary debate that takes place in the United States in contradistinction to that nuanced debate. And that is, should we be in or should we be out? And you know, Trump is kind of leaning at the moment towards, let's get out of Syria. Let's get out of Afghanistan. Let's not get involved in these long-term wars. He seems to have a rather contradictory view with regard to Iran, but setting that aside for a moment, because of the catastrophe of the Iraq war, the catastrophe of the Afghanistan war, the, the, the 20 years of fighting to no avail, um, the, it, it does seem like there's not much appetite for deep engagement of the US in the region at the moment. Um, and yet at the same time, the leadership in the region is really, really bad. You know, there's no shining star that we can turn to and say, oh yeah, this is a pocket of hope. Um, they are unprincipled. They are corrupt. They are self-dealing. They are uh, uh, dealing with our enemies in some cases. They're playing, most of them, a game where they're playing the U.S. and Europe off of Russia and China. Um, and, and the question becomes... Do we look to the next ten years as a period where we sort of let the Middle East sort itself out uh, and have some relationships but don't get too you know uh, you know in above say our our knees into anything uh, or or is there some different approach that we haven't considered?
1: Um, I I wish I could come up with a different approach we haven't considered, but I, again, I sort of start with the recognition that the only core strategic interest the United States has, the the only one that really affects us directly, is access to energy in the region. That may go down over time as uh, the world becomes less reliant on fossil fuels, uh, maybe because of the shale gas revolution to some degree, but right now if Middle East oil and gas were cut off or significantly uh, reduced it would have pretty substantial economic effects on everyone even though the United States doesn't get a lot of energy itself from that part of the world anymore. Uh, we still have some something of an interest for sort of economic prosperity to keep the oil and gas flowing. That doesn't mean the United States has to control the region. Uh, we couldn't do it when we had upwards of a quarter of a million troops there. Uh, but fortunately, we don't have to. We just have to make sure nobody else controls uh, all of that uh, oil and gas as well. Um, and so we should be, in fact, getting getting out of the business of trying to shape and dictate the local politics of the region. I think we've spent the last quarter century trying to do it, and we're not very good at it. Um, We don't know which leaders to back. Uh, We are frequently taken uh, to the cleaners by uh, various snake oil salesmen uh, from the region. And it turns out that figuring out how to run local institutions in societies that are very different from our own is is really quite hard to do. Um, And by the way, I don't think anybody else is going to do a substantially better job either. I don't think uh, Russia will be able to come in and tell people uh, throughout the Middle East how to organize their polities and run their lives. I don't think Iran is going to be able to do that anywhere outside uh, Iran itself. Uh, Certainly Saudi Arabia is not going to be able to do that. Turkey is not going to be able to do it. Israel is not going to be able to do it. So the place, I think, is in fact going to be something of a cauldron, of instability for quite some time. but fortunately, that's not going to affect us very much, provided it doesn't uh, you know uh, lead to one country sort of shaping the whole region. And I just don't see that in the cards at all. So yes, uh, you know, I have uh, my view is we should have a rather minimalist uh, engagement, certainly diplomatic uh, with all countries in the region. We should retain the military capacity to intervene there if we have to. But uh, we shouldn't have a large military presence there right now because there's no basic threat to the overall balance of power in the region. If that were to change, uh, as it did say when Saddam Hussein seized Kuwait, we'd have to rethink things. Uh, But for for the moment, I think uh, less is more.
0: Well, I I think I was going to say that seems to be where you're getting is is less is more. You listed a bunch of countries. One country you didn't mention that has a very strategic view towards the region and is actually kind of sort of doing what you're talking about is China. Uh, They built a base in Djibouti. Uh, They're going to build another base in Pakistan that gives them a base on either side of the entrance to the Persian Gulf and in, of, of the region. These are their first two out-of-country naval bases. Uh, their biggest embassy in the world is in Pakistan. They've got a $45 billion infrastructure plan to build roads and trains and things into Pakistan as a way to gain access ultimately to the Gulf. And if you look at the trading partners of countries like Egypt and Israel and Saudi Arabia and Iran, The Chinese are the number one or number two trading partner of all those countries. So they've got economic leverage and they are strategically positioning themselves. And in fact, their belt and road initiative is very much oriented towards ensuring their access to the resources of this region. Um, Seems to me that their role is going to only increase in this period. Wondering what your thoughts are.
1: Well, we could learn a lot, actually, from how China has approached uh, the region. Uh, And in particular, uh, so China has now been uh, cultivating much closer ties with Saudi Arabia. Uh, And, you know, Mohammed bin Salman is, I believe, going to China uh, if he hasn't been there already. And at the same time, the Chinese have made it abundantly clear that no matter what the Saudis say to them, they're not going to abandon their relationship with Iran, that they don't feel like they have to choose one or the other, um, that they want to be on good terms with as many countries in the Middle East as possible. And at the same time, of course, Saudi Arabia wants to talk to China as a way of reminding us that they have options. Well, of course, we here in the United States should be doing exactly the same thing. So when, when Mike Pompeo goes to Riyadh, I wish his next stop were Tehran, and after Tehran, I'd like him to go to Tel Aviv, and after Tel Aviv, I'd like him to go to Ankara. Why? Because first of all, we ought to be talking to all of these countries. But second of all, when he's in each of those capitals, I want all of them to feel some incentive to tell him things he wants to hear, because they all know that he's going to the next stop and is going to be listening to somebody else. That's what a country like the United States, which is on the other side of the world, is very powerful, can do a lot to hurt you, can do a lot to help you, would do. And that's, of course, the way China has played this game. The other thing, of course, is that China, although it is increasing its uh, strategic infrastructure in the region in a variety of ways, has stayed out of filing, fighting foolish and costly wars trying to nation-build in these various uh, places. And that's something else we could learn from uh, as well. We should have the capacity to intervene in extreme circumstances if we have to, but that should be a last resort, not our, our first impulse, and certainly not something we, uh, you know we take the initiative to start wars there.
0: Well, it seems like one of the things the Chinese do, of course, is they use their economic uh, uh, leverage uh, to the advantage of the country uh, wherever they possibly can. They have fairly transactional relationships. They also recognize the essential role that trade in certain resources and so forth has for them, given their, their own limitations. But it's strategic. The United States, on the other hand, is led by a guy who is not strategic, uh, he's not tactical. He's he's not thinking most of the time, as far as I can tell. He's kind of impulse driven, uh, but he's often driven by the bottom line, and it gets us into situations uh, like the one that we've got now with Saudi Arabia, with other countries in the Persian Gulf, where, and and by the way, where I think the U.S. Congress is going to really do a deep dive into the nature of the compromising relationships that Trump and Kushner and others. Have with the Saudis and the Emiratis and others, um, simply because uh, it seems like Trump's perfectly willing to rent out U.S. support uh, in exchange for deals, even in the face of the Saudis murdering a U.S. resident, uh, throwing you know people in jail, you know putting women on death row for wanting to drive a car. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a, the MBS regime is disgusting. It, it should be brought to justice. And our position is kind of like, uh, hey, guys, it's fine. You know, and and the only rationale is, 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 you know, the personal business of, of Trump and family.
1: Well, you said a moment ago that, you know, Trump is very bottom line focused. And the problem is we don't know which bottom line is the one that he's most concerned about. Uh, That uh, revolving around the Trump organization or his in-laws or whatever, or what we might think of as the bottom line of the American national interest. And it's obviously not just the uh the case with the relationship with Saudi Arabia but there have been questions uh surrounding him that we may ultimately get the answer to uh regarding his relationship with Russia uh and organized crime and a variety of other things as well and this has i think you know ever since he uh, won the presidency has been the sort of dark cloud uh trailing him, that nobody quite knows why he's doing the things he's doing, and if he's doing it for his own benefit, or he's doing it because he thinks it's somehow uh, good for the United States uh, overall. Uh, you know, I hope we get to the bottom of this, but uh, it's, I think, been a huge uh, distraction, as well as the thing that's compromised much of American foreign policy, and, of course, makes it harder for him to deal with other countries uh, as well. Um, I I might also add that the the absence of strategy uh, revolving around the entire uh, Trump administration is really uh, sort of breathtaking, even where I think he's had decent instincts um, that, you know, there was something wasn't quite working right with NATO and that nation building in far-flung lands wasn't such a smart thing to be doing, and that maybe it was time to get tough with China on uh, some of its trade practices, all plus is where I think his position is completely defensible. He has been unable to approach any of those problems in a way that really has made progress. And in some respects, both the combination of sort of lack of impulse control and the uh, constant desire to sort of pick fights with our friends rather than with our enemies uh, has greatly compromised our ability to actually accomplish anything, even in the areas where his first instincts might have been correct.
0: Well, let's, you know, we've only got a few minutes left here. And, uh, you know, we've been focusing primarily on the Middle East. And I think you've rightly opened it up a little bit. um, And I'll just open it up even further. We're two years into the Trump administration. We've had a couple of secretaries of state, we've had three national security advisors. We're uh do any minute now for a second defense secretary I hope I hope I you know perhaps we will have one um we've had some turnover in the intelligence community and it looks like we will soon have more um and the president has sort of been yawing all over the pond uh you know you, you mentioned some instincts he has that are right I guess sort of get the impression that he's like looked at an article in the New York Times read the caption and moved on you know he hasn't sort of gone much more deeply than that. So he's got some slogans, but, but nothing to ground it in. But uh, you know, uh, the North Korea thing looks like he wants a deal regardless of whether there ought to be one. Uh, you know, it's again, it's a not a terrible instinct, but it, you know, it is if you if you sell out our national security. The only place he's been consistent is Russia um, where he has regularly given them more benefit of the doubt than we've given anybody else, how would you rate Donald Trump foreign policy halfway through the first term?
1: It's a tragedy, uh, not in the Greek sense. Right in Greek drama, right the hero has many virtues and is brought down by a tragic flaw. Uh, Here we have multiple uh, flaws and precious few virtues, Um, but it's still nonetheless tragic because he did have, uh, I think, some good instincts about some of the ways that American foreign policy had gone off the rails. Um, But none of the things you recited, and I could add a few more, uh, none of them should surprise us, right? Uh, It's not like he popped out of nowhere back in 2016. There was a long career in business. Uh, This was well-documented. Multiple bankruptcies lots of disgruntled former partners uh, a uh, loose relationship with the truth at best uh, lots of unhappy former employees etc so the pattern of his personal conduct uh, was well established in his business uh, dealings and of course to expect anything different once he became president uh, you know now that the responsibilities of office would suddenly cause a transformation of character at uh, in one's early 70s, I I think was just uh, uh, nonsense. Uh, So what have we seen? We've seen that he has terrible judgment on people. He's not good at picking subordinates. Uh, Has made a whole series of bad uh, choices there. Uh, Second, he's completely self-absorbed, so working for him is not a whole lot of fun. He doesn't care actually about helping his subordinates accomplish things. It's just all about whether or not his ego is being uh, fed. Uh, He's impossible to work with, which is why the level of senior turnover in his administration is at unprecedented levels. Um, People go to work thinking they might be able to accomplish something. They realize after a few months that nothing's actually going to get done. Um, And furthermore, he's a frequently abusive boss. And so why stay and uh, take the abuse if you're not actually accomplishing anything? And the last part, I guess I would say, is what what I view as kind of his reality show approach to policy and to diplomacy. The one thing that Trump is, in fact, a genius at, and one has to give him credit, is getting attention and keeping it. Um, You know, he's got the attention of the world and the country riveted on him, for good or bad, that is to say, both positively and negatively, all the time. And these uh, summits with Kim Jong-un are perfect example of this, uh, that even uh, the first one, where nothing essentially was accomplished, had a big audience share. You know, he learned this from The Apprentice. How do you keep people tuning in next week, even if nothing is really happening, even if it's not that important, because it sure is entertaining. Um, and I think we're you know, uh, going to be living with another couple of years of a sort of reality show presidency that will get a lot of attention but may not accomplish much positive good for the country. And that's, by the way, assuming that there aren't a sufficient number of smoking guns in the various legal inquiries into his behavior uh, that all are going to start coming home to roost in the next couple of years.
0: So it sounds to me like you've come up with the... 21st century American equivalent of the old Chinese curse, which has now uh, been modified into may you live in entertaining time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, it's certainly, it's not dull, uh, but, yeah. but again, it, but but when you consider all of the issues that we face, I mean, we do have a world that's in transition in a lot of different places. We have uh, no shortage of problems to address here in the United States, uh, despite all of the advantages the United States has and I think still enjoys. There's plenty of things that you would like sort of sustained, uh, responsible public attention by both parties, and we're not going to get that with this presidency.
0: Well, I think the other problem that goes along with this presidency, uh, and perhaps we'll have to discuss this on another episode, is there's not a lot of time left, but is that we ought to be having a discussion about the things that you've cited, the elements of our foreign policy that don't work, alliances like NATO that need to be revisited, or the international nuclear agreements that need to be revisited or the UN or the World Trade Organization or the absence of mechanisms to deal with things like climate or the absence of mechanisms to deal effectively like with things like uh, international uh, flows of refugees uh, or next generation issues, cyber and doctrines to deal with cyber. Uh, And also we, you know, have in the United States a whole host of other domestic issues that relate to our strength, growing inequality, structural problems, distrust of institutions that would lead one to believe that this was a time after 75 years of a post-World War II model that that worked pretty well to get out a blank sheet of paper and to say, how do we move to the 2.0 version of these organizations, or something entirely new? How do we update this? Because the baby boomers did what they could with it, and it's time for a new generation to look at it and do something new. And, and, and it seems to me that so long as everything's so entertaining and there's so many things going on, we're not, we're not even getting to that discussion.
1: Yeah, I think that, I think that's right. There's, there's sort of, t- I, I mean, if I gave Trump any credit, and this was not something he did on purpose, but I do think his presidency has, um, for a variety of reasons, opened this a lot of these topics up for discussion. We are having a sort of broader range of street- Uh, strategic options being considered now uh, in ways that haven't really happened before. Some of that is just changes in the world. Uh, Some of that is, I think, also that he's uh, gone outside the normal consensus so many times on Twitter and in speeches that it's sort of legitimated raising some some bigger questions. Uh, The difficulty, as you point out, is that he's also simultaneously also a distraction the second problem, though, I think, is more insidious and is going to take some time uh, to fix, and that is that it's the continued hollowing out of government institutions. And it didn't begin with Trump. Uh, I think there's been a sort of campaign to starve the beast, as you say, uh, what what Steve Bannon used to say, you know, uh, destroying the administrative state. And it's often because many Americans simply don't understand how important it is to have competent people in public institutions at the Pentagon, at Treasury, at Commerce, at the State Department, at, God forbid, the Internal Revenue Service. Uh, And you want people who have experience, have a sense of public uh, commitment in those places, and those institutions are in fact being hollowed out, I think most visibly at the State Department, but not, uh, not uniquely there. Um, And the problem is, even if you got a sensible president in 2020 who wanted to start addressing all of the issues you named, they would not be able to do it with quite as uh, competent and effective a set of institutions. And I'm not even getting into Congress uh, yet. Um, And so, you know, I've occasionally uh, talked with people around here and uh, written about the, the need to start thinking about how we rebuild those governing institutions now so that when the opportunity presents itself in another couple of years, I hope, uh, we can begin. We don't have to start drawing up the plans in 2020 that people have some ideas on what to do before then.
0: Well, I, I strongly encourage you to do that because, I, you know, I teach at a bunch of schools of international affairs pretty regularly and I don't see the discussions happening. Uh, and I see a couple of big gaps. Beyond the gap of trying to tackle these problems. One is the people who do policy are not being trained in the technologies that will change every area of policy. So, in the 1950s and 60s, if you wanted to do national security policy, you had to learn nuclear, you had to speak nuclear, you had to know what a throwaway it was because you couldn't have a credible discussion about it if you didn't. Nowadays, uh, as we, whether you're looking at big data or AI or swarms or cyber or any of these things you see that every area of foreign policy is changing by technology the technology changes are going to happen quickly they're going to shift geopolitical balances and most people who are being trained in policy have no grounding in this at all certainly legislatively in Washington there's almost no one who can have an intelligent discussion about it at the same time As you move into a world which every person is connected to one another, uh, uh, in in, this kind of wired world paradigm where literally anybody, anywhere can contact anybody, anywhere else, anytime, uh, uh, effectively for free, uh, we're redefining what a community is and how societies work together. And that actually requires a rethinking of some fundamental philosophical issues about why are we organized as we are? What are our goals? What are our shared goals? What's a community, and so forth? And and we're not getting you know to these baseline discussions, much less the others. So, you guys there can lead the way. More power to you. Somebody's got to get there sooner or later.
1: We do. I do have some colleagues who are actually working very hard now on a lot of the the cyber issues, and there's some conversations actually that have started to begin also on the whole question of of. Uh, governance of a network world from an information point of view. People, including people at uh, places like Google and Facebook, starting to recognize that their platforms you know, are sources of good and bad equally, and they don't really want the job of trying to monitor content. And of course, we don't want uh, the president of Google or Mark Zuckerberg deciding for himself what we can see and what we can't see. We have to have a broader national conversation about what we think is permissible and to what extent this uh, ability to talk to each other uh, all the time and for anybody to put any kind of, quote, information, unquote, up in the public domain, what all the consequences uh, for that are. And I think we're just beginning to recognize how important that is.
0: Uh Absolutely agree and, and hope that a lot of energy gets directed in that direction. Also, I hope you'll come back sometime. I think this has been a great discussion. Uh, I'm sure our listeners will appreciate it. And uh, and uh, there's a lot more left to discuss. So perhaps we'll have you back on again soon.
1: I'd love to talk. All
0: right. Terrific. Thank good, you good very much. Do, David. Yeah, thank you, Steve. And that's it for this episode of National Security Magazine. Please Join us for more of our programming at deepstateradionetwork.com. There's Deep State Radio, there's Washington for Beautiful People, there's more issues of National Security Magazine, and there's a lot of other content. So go there, join up, support what we're doing. We appreciate it. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.